Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. And Lord, we do praise you because you give us, well, some of us, gifts of singing. And Lord, you also give us uh, gifts of hearing your word. And Lord, I pray that tonight, Jesus, that you would remove from us the, the things that would distract us from hearing your word and from me speaking your word. And God, Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you would wash us of our sins so that, God, we would be cleansed and we would be ready willing and able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ uh, through your word tonight. And God, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that you, first and foremost, would receive all the glory, honor, and praise. I pray that we would be benefited. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be exhorted. And I pray that we would be equipped uh, to be the men and women of God that you have created to be. And Lord, I pray that your kingdom would expand and that ours would diminish. But Lord, that you would win souls and you would disciple believers through what is happening here tonight. Bless us, Jesus, and we will truly be blessed. And we, Lord Jesus, love you with all our hearts. Amen. If the Bible is boring... You aren't reading it right. These are the words of one of my absolute favorite practical theologians, Pastor James Barr. (laughs) If you prayerfully and expectantly read God's word, you will find many little cameos of understanding. One such is found in John chapter 10. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote, I love that word, smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Wait, did you just read that? Simon Peter took a sword and chopped off some dude's ear. Well, that was just, you know, like a little love bump, right? Kind of like I do fist bumps. He was just kind of bumping them with the sword. No! You don't chop off someone's ear with a sword by trying to give him bumps. Peter was trying to chop off his head. He just hit his helmet or something. Peter had all of his both righteous and unrighteous anger, I would say, mixed and frothing and spewing out of his heart. Fortunately for Malchus, Jesus was there because it tells us in Luke 22, Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear, this one, and he healed him. Now, if you're being bored by the Bible, you're not reading it right. Because when you read this, you have to imagine Malchus goes home after all this happened, and either his wife or the other dudes that are in his barracks with him are going to say, dude, what's with all the blood all over your uniform? Man, I got my ear chopped off. Dude, stop lying to me. What's with the blood? I got my ear chopped off tonight. He would have had to seen all the blood coming down 
and then remembered that Jesus healed his ear. And he would have had to think, what is going on? Ears don't just come off and then get put back on. I mean, this is a bloody, dirty, painful miracle by someone who's about to get crucified. If the Bible is boring, you're not reading it right. Now, you say, great, Greg. This is one of those exciting passages. It's the passion of Jesus Christ. Let's get to what we normally consider Snoozeville. Some list of names that we can't pronounce. And why on earth should we read it? Well, let's look at one of these lists of names, and we find it in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read, starting in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. <laughs> and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the son of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Okay. Um, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Excuse me. Now, how many of you guys have ever done that? Okay, the rest of you, we're going to talk about lying next week. I've warned you before, it's going to happen. Right off the bat, when you get to this, and, and I'll grant you, this is actually an easy one to read because you know all the names, or at least you know most of the names and you've got the stories in your head. And so you're good. You can handle this one. But right off the bat, you have to notice that in the vast majority of Jewish genealogies, there are very few women. Here we got four. Tamar was a Canaanite, a people who were hated by the Jews, sworn enemies. Rahab was a madam. Yes, that kind of madam. And if she wasn't a madam, then she was at least the sole proprietor or the sole employee at a brothel. Yes, that kind of brothel that you're thinking about right now. Ruth, as we know from Sunday mornings, was a descendant of the fruit of an incestuous relationship. Wow. That is, and, and not only that, but it's from a people who were rightly or wrongly hated by the Jews. And then we get to Bathsheba, and Bathsheba seems to be a good person, but she was the wife of one of King David's most trusted employees that David, King David, yes, the man after whose heart God was, or he, he was a man after God's own heart, David rapes her and then has her husband murdered. While it wasn't her fault, obviously, it was hardly a situation that some upstanding, self-righteous, self-respecting Jew would want in his past. You know, someone like, oh, King Solomon. But what we get as we read this list of names is we get a very clear 
picture of how willing God is to include people into his people. God saw fit to put all of them and the reminder of what they did into the family history of his Messiah. My friends, you cannot out many of the greatest quote-unquote heroes of Scripture. And my friends, you definitely cannot out God's grace as long as you desire that grace. And if the Bible is boring, it's because you're not reading it right. You're not expectantly and prayerfully coming to God's word to hear him. Now, last week, we parasailed, is the image I landed on, over the vast ocean of faith, hope, love, grace, peace, and joy that is the good news according to Matthew. And I promised you that I would take time to show you both the forest, the entirety, or the, the big sections of Matthew, as well as look at the individual trees that make up the forest. I think both are absolutely important because we need to understand how the little parts interact with the big parts so we can see all of what Matthew is trying to teach us. Now, I imagined in doing this that we would go over each of the major sections in a sermon each to remind us what that section looked like. And today, we're coming to the point where the first section, it's a short section, it's only three and a half chapters, but it's one of the three main divisions of the book of Matthew. But as I was preparing, I noticed, well, it's pretty straightforward what is going on. Uh, I think the next two major sections are going to require a one sermon to kind of get the forest picture. But what I want to do tonight is kind of water ski through chapters one and two. And when we get to chapters three and four, we're going to spend one sermon each. Uh, We may do two in chapter four, but we'll want to see there some things that I think that we're not familiar with. Yes, we know the story. It's occurred to us. We were in Sunday school. But I think there's things that we're going to need to spend time on. But let's right now hit a few of the highlights, starting with a couple of major important notes out of the genealogy that you normally skip when you're trying to read through Matthew. So, some observations. One is Matthew's genealogy is divided into three sections of 14 names each. We have Abraham to David, we have David to the Babylonian captivity, and then we have the Babylonian captivity to Jesus. Now, it's painfully obvious that the reason Matthew did this division is so that it would be easier to memorize the passage. Hmm. Memorizing the passage. I wonder what that says about how important Matthew thought that the genealogy is that we're so quick to pass over. Hmm. No, we'll skip that. We don't want to get, you know, feel uncomfortable or anything. But it also explains why some names were omitted. Now, between Joram and Uzziah, 
two kings of Israel, David's descendants. There were three kings, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. But that shouldn't cause us to worry very much because very often in the summaries of genealogies, as opposed to the actual temple records, it wasn't unusual for them to skip over. Minor figures were often deleted because the main purpose was to give the essential connections in the family line, not all the little minor details. And it appears, though it's not absolutely certain, that what Matthew is doing here is giving Joseph's genealogy. By the way, it's less certain that Luke is giving Mary's genealogy, although that is something that many scholars will say. But this would help to explain the differences between the two genealogies, because if you compare them side by side, they are, in fact, different. But I take it that this is Joseph's genealogy for other reasons, but my main reason we find in Matthew 1.16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. I'm sorry, my throat is really dry tonight. Of whom, here in verse 16, is the feminine, it's the feminine form, and is obviously pointing to Mary, who is far more important in terms of Jesus' humanity than Joseph was. But it's obvious in this thing that Joseph is the bottom line of all this genealogy that has happened. So why spend all this time? Why spend the time to develop the genealogy of a man who, humanly speaking, is not even related to the Messiah? Well, Matthew's point, his, he was very interested in legal rights. He claims right off the top that Jesus is the son of David and he is the son of Abraham. Now, in making this point, that he is the son of David, the king, and he is the son of Abraham, the one to whom the promises originally were made, that is his point of the whole passage. As the son of David, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And as the son of Abraham, Jesus is the promised seed. He is the rightful heir of all the promises that God made unconditionally to Abraham. Now, Luke's genealogy makes the further point of saying that Jesus is also the Son of God. Now, I think Matthew avoided this very logical conclusion because he recognized something important. He recognized that although it's empirically clear that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham, it needed proof that Jesus was, is indeed the son of God. And as such, he is the rightful heir to your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is exactly what he does in the rest of his good news according to Matthew. Now, one last but very significant observation to be made out of Matthew's genealogy is that God has no grandchildren. What do we see here? Matthew records Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Then it records Hezekiah, one of the few righteous kings who lived at all, but whose son was one of the most wicked kings. We also have Amos, who did evil in God's sight, whose son was Josiah, a good king, whose son was Jeconiah, another evil king. Here is the point of Matthew's genealogy. God is very interested in people. And he is very interested in using people to make a difference in the real world. The Bible contains so many genealogies, in part, I'm not saying it's the only reason, but it is a significant reason, in part because God wants his book to be firmly grounded in history, not in some fanciful never-never land where, like where the gods of Olympus live. Because nobody and nothing lives in Never Never Land. Instead, God uses real men and real women, no matter how sinful or quote-unquote untouchable they are, to bring about his purposes in his time. So the next time you come to a genealogy and you start doing this, pay attention. These are real people's names. These are real individuals who, with whom God had something to do. And not only that, but it's because God the Son was born in a line of kings, many of whom were far more wicked than any president, at least it seems so from the outside. We have Manasseh, Amos, and Jeconiah, for example. Jesus was descended from these wicked kings, and that tells me in part that you and I don't need to fret. We don't need to be anxious about who is going to take the oath of office on January 20th next year. I'm not saying don't care. I'm not saying don't have an opinion, but don't fret about it. Because no matter who is the president, God is the king. But secondly, You and I need to pray for our children and grandchildren because God doesn't have grandchildren. Don't just skip this long list of names. Find out who they are and understand as you read their names how significant it is for you to pray for your children and your grandchildren so that they will glorify God in a manner that will benefit them because they will glorify God whether they do it to their benefit or not. Now, as we're going down in Matthew's good news, what comes next is the story of Jesus' birth. But before we get to his birth, we come to something that scoffers love to poke fun at. In the story of the first three chapters of Matthew, we find that there are five dreams. And these five dreams occur to different people. Joseph had a couple. The Magi had one. And scoffers love to make fun of this because they say, well, all religions have prophets that have dreams. And this is just a copying. The Christians are just copying the other religions to show how similar they are. And it may be true that all religions have prophets with dreams, but Matthew's point is neither that God commonly communicates with dreams, 
we only find one more dream in in the entirety of the story, and that's at the end. Nor is his point that God only communicates with dreams. Matthew's point instead is that God is taking a very active interest in the events surrounding the birth and the early life of his son. And in these cases, God is communicating clearly and unambiguously with those who are involved so that they will know that God has a desire, that he has a purpose in these events, and that there's not some coincidence that things will merely work out this way. My friends, we learned this point this morning in the sermon. We need to understand that God is both sovereign and that God is good. He is powerful enough to act in history, even in your history. And he is good enough to do what is best, even if that involves giving you a palette of painful colors. Now, I'm tempted to go more in depth, and I was going to expand and do each chapter one whole week of the actual birth story. But I'll resist because you've heard a number of Christmas stories, and you've heard the sermons, and we're going to get some more coming up very soon. But I want to hit in the most important point of the birth narrative, and that is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, most of you have heard me say something along the lines of my favorite of all the promises in God's word is Emmanuel, God with us. Because if he is with you, if he is with you, you don't need to be afraid of any cancer. You don't need to be afraid of any surgery. You don't need to be afraid of any financial difficulty. You don't need to be afraid of missing out on something that you desperately want. If God is with you, you have all that you need. But I wanted to make this point very clear. I wanted to show you straight through the entirety of the Bible how in just a small, these are just the passages that occurred to me. I didn't even look them up. How much it shows that your God is with you. And it starts right at the beginning. In Genesis 17, 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. You are that offspring, by the way. Throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The the point here is that God is interested in being with his people. But that's not the only promise. We get a few books later. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now clearly this is a promise to Moses, or Abraham, excuse me, and to uh, Joshua. But By extension, it can be a promise to us as well because of what we see next. Even though I walk through this life that I never know when I'm going to die. 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Amen. That's not all. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you sign. He's Isaiah, I love this passage. I can't resist. Isaiah is talking to King Ahab right now. And Ahab is pretending that he's righteous. And Isaiah sees right through to his heart. And he says, fine. You know what? God himself will give you a sign. Behold, look, see, pay attention. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Immanuel. Immanuel. God with us. And then my favorite, my favorite version of this promise is found in Hebrews 13.5 where it says, keep your life free from the love of money. Never mind. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew will not be outdone. At the very end of his book, Jesus promises, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you doubted that the other promises were for you, clearly these two are for you. And the last but not least, almost the very end of the Bible. Oh, I almost can't read this without crying. You have to read Revelation 21. John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! Saying, Look, pay attention, everybody. I'm telling you something you got to know. That's what behold means. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, that enemy that you're so afraid of, that enemy that you're so afraid of that you fill your life with noise so you don't have to think about it, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Yes, your shoulders and your hips and your fingers will work again. You know why? Because all that stuff, it's gone. The former things, they're wiped out. They're destroyed along with the old earth. My friends, this is good news. God is with you. You can take this promise to the bank. With all the trouble that you will go through in your life, your God is with you. We find that in John 16, 33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you. Why? Why is it so important that I read the Gospel of John, so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. (laughs) Duh. Right? But take heart. Have courage. Do the right thing in spite of your pain and your fear. Don't let your pain and your fear Paint your image of God. Amen? Why? Because I've taken care of everything. I've got you covered. Nothing's going to happen to you that I haven't conquered. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Now we need to parasail again. 
this time specifically over chapter 2. Two things stand out when we're reading the story of the Magi celebrating the birth of Jesus. And one more observation will help us understand a little bit better the entirety of the good news according to Matthew much better. The first is the existence of the Magi themselves. Apparently, if you go and read the commentaries, there's very little scholarly evidence on these men. We have no idea who they really were. There's all kinds of theories about it, but there's a lot, there's very little hard evidence. By the way, concerning the Magi themselves, all we really know is that there was more than one. We certainly don't know that their names were Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, if you guys are familiar with that at all. But Daniel's prophetic book alludes to the Magoi. And the Magoi were these people who lived in Babylon with him. This is where the idea that they were wise men has come. And this very may well be the truth. We don't have a whole lot of evidence, so this is what we got. It may also be the truth that there was a group of these men who survived the intervening centuries from when Daniel was there and prophesying to the birth of the Messiah. And these evidently, again, we don't have a lot of hard evidence, but evidently they had at least a respect for Israel's God if they weren't actually followers of Yahweh. Now, all of this, as I said, is speculation. And even if they are true, at best, it points to a truth that we'll share in just a moment. But first, we get to one of my biggest pet peeves. You ready? The Bethlehem Star. Let me just say once and for all that way way too much ink has been spilled in defense of one theory or another of the conjunction of these planets or some supernova or some other gibberish like that. Now, could God have used celestial events to alert the Magi? Of course he could. Did he? Maybe. Let's even say that they did. But here's the point. The point is in Matthew 2, 9. The Magi, Magi, after listening to the king, Herod, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So these guys are looking at something that they saw in Babylon, perhaps, and now it's heading off in front of them. There is no conjunction of heavenly bodies that will come to rest over a building. By the way, some of you may have balked at the fact that I said building. In Luke, we find that he was born, laid in a manger inside of a stable, but evidently by the time that the Magi get there, he's living in a building of some sort. They had some opportunity to get a normal residence. Still, the Magi made it all the way to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. So I'm not opposed to some form of celestial event alerting them. And yet, here's the whole point to the story about the Magi. The king in Jerusalem, who was himself half Jewish, not only did not know where the Magi, where the Messiah was to be born, unlike the Magi who lived 
thousand miles away and came all the way. But this half-Jewish king tried to murder his Messiah. Now here are wise men, right? Quote-unquote wise men, who by some traditions had some royalty in their blood, like Herod the Great. And they marched across the desert and whose Metaphorically, whose ancestors marched through about 700 years of history and was set in stark contrast to a king who would not march six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see the anointed one. And furthermore, not only would he not go himself, but he sent soldiers to murder the innocents. Now here we get to a major emphasis that we're going to keep coming back to throughout the good news according to Matthew. And that is that Matthew places a great importance on God's mission to the Gentiles. God's mission to the non-Jews. Chapter 2 is a large part of this emphasis. There were Gentile wise men who were in big contrast to a supposedly Jewish king. Then we also have Jesus living in Egypt, which was a Jew in Egypt? That's just wrong. We left there. And then we have a Jew, half-Jew, murdering Jews. And then we have the prophet of all prophets going away and living in Galilee of the Gentiles. Now we're going to keep seeing this emphasis of Gentiles being looked at positively, especially in contrast to Jews who were not looked at positively. But we will also see that Jesus himself is very involved in the personal lives of many of these Gentiles. But as far as you and I are concerned, and I'm assuming some of you may come up to me afterwards and tell me that you have some Jewish blood. My dad told me at one time, I think it was his great-grandma was half-Jewish, so whatever that means. It means I'm American. <laughs> right? We're Gentiles. And so what this tells us, what this emphasis will bring us to is what Paul makes perfectly clear in Ephesians chapter 2, he's, where he says, you, you and I, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, I love how Paul does that. But now, he's saying, this is a big thing that you need to catch. He's saying, in Christ Jesus, the one whose birth we just parasailed over, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. My friends, you and I can rejoice with our hearts brimming over with joy in large part because of what we read in Matthew 2. Your God is interested in you. Your God did not remain what the Jews tried to keep him as a tribal or national deity. Instead, 
your God is with you, Emmanuel, and he will be your God and you shall be his people. And because of that, as we progress through the good news according to Matthew, we will also see this, that he is interested. The good news is that he is interested in your life. If you get nothing else out of tonight, and I did not plan this on purpose, but it sure seems like a divine pun that God gave us the sermon we had this morning, that God is sovereign and he is good. And we get this sermon tonight in Matthew 1 and 2, where God is interested in your life and making you a part of what he has done. And for that, my friends, we can rejoice. Let us pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, Lord, we do rejoice. We do come before you as the King Eternal, the King of the Jews and the King of the Gentiles. God, I pray that you would this week enable us to trust you more and therefore love you and know you better as well. Give us your blessing tonight so that we can go forth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.